Let's now turn to the third chapter of Acts, and we'll read through this chapter. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, He responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Our text uh, this evening, congregation, is uh, verses 19 through 21 congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the birth of Christ and the ascension of Christ 
might be compared to bookends, bookends to the great work of the Son of God uh, in the flesh, in his ministry on earth. And upon his birth, he entered upon that work, uh, coming into this world, and he ascended back to his father when that work on earth was finished. Now, of these two great uh, events, these redemptive historical works of Christ, there's no doubt that his birth receives uh, far more attention than uh, his ascension. There is a national holiday, uh, not only in Canada, but in many other countries that commemorate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can be thankful for that, that God in his sovereign providence yet has such a testimony. But actually, uh, an Ascension Day service, you know, when you uh, say to people that you have an Ascension Day service at church, many will give you a blank stare. They, they don't know what you're talking about. And uh, if you explain it to them, uh, they listen to you as if they're hearing something strange. Because the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is not viewed as of great significance really at all in terms of the redemptive work of our Savior, certainly in comparison uh, to Christmas. And Ascension Day services are typically uh, not so well attended as uh, Christmas services are. They may be a variety of reasons for that, but one of them might be that it's not just viewed as as that uh, big of a deal, as of so of such importance. But actually, it could be argued that there are more specific references in Scripture, and with more uh, distinct applications to the Christian faith and life, with reference to the ascension of Christ, than there are with respect to the birth of Christ. We might also argue that uh, as joyful as our commemoration of the birth of Christ is, there's ascension, a sense in which we might say that, that the ascension of Christ is even more joyful, even as there's a difference between our Lord and his entry upon his suffering work in his humiliation and the end of that suffering work in his humiliation when he ascended in glory and returned to his Father Jesus told his disciples, if you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I go to the Father. He spoke those words in John chapter 14. We ought to rejoice in the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, for what it means for us, but for what it means for him, our Lord, our Savior, our elder brother, one who shares our nature by whose ascension we have our flesh in heaven as a pledge and a guarantee that we will follow him, by whose ascension these spiritual gifts are poured out and lavished upon the church by the work of his Holy Spirit, by whose ascension he entered into that most holy place with the blood of atonement, fulfilling the shadows of the Old Testament priesthood as our mediator, by whose very presence before God pleads for our salvation and forgiveness, by his advocacy at the right hand of the Father. There are so many rich strands of of teaching that are uh, drawn from the wonder of Christ's ascension. And Christ's ascension, you might say in a more pointed way, 
in a more direct way, in a more commanding and authoritative and compelling way, confronts all people with an urgent message. And we hear that message in our text this evening, in the words of of, uh, verse 19, Repent! Repent, therefore, on the basis of who Christ actually is and what He has done as the suffering one who is now glorified, who has been raised up. Therefore, repent. From the ascended Lord comes the gracious call to repentance. And we're going to hear that that call to repentance in terms of what it means and and the results of it in these uh, verses before us. We're going to look at three things beginning with the the call to receive the forgiveness of sins from the one who suffered. Now that word, uh, repent, I think we could all agree that it's not a word that has a very happy sound in the ears of most people. I actually saw a bumper sticker on the way to church tonight which said, repent, Jesus is coming. And I wholeheartedly endorse that message because it's true. Jesus is coming, and people ought to repent. And I hope many people will ask this man who's driving the car, what does that mean to repent? And I hope that he can explain it from the Scripture. Because it is an urgent message, but you can be sure that most people, when they hear the word repent, maybe that's associated with some some wild-eyed fanatic, street preacher maybe, who's just speaking condemnation. It's a word that sounds like judgment. It's a word that grates on the ear of people. It sounds harsh. It sounds completely negative. There's nothing gracious sounding uh, to it at all to the ears of most people. And yes, indeed, this word repent implies the need for change. To repent means to turn to turn in our way of thinking, in our way of living. It's to turn indeed from sin and to turn to God. Repent and be converted. Those words, be converted, could be rendered. Turn, turn. Actually, you hear the word turn in verse 26 where it says, God having raised up His servant Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning every one of you from your iniquities. Even that verse connects turning with blessing. Christ comes to bless by turning people from sin to God. And that's how, that's how we ought to hear this, this call to repent, as a gracious summons. It implies the need for change, but the, the command to repent doesn't cause condemnation, nor does it cause the need for change, but rather the word repent points to the way out of condemnation. It points to the remedy, God's provision, that people ought to heed and receive. The call to repent is a call to wake up to how wrong we have been. The Jews had been dreadfully wrong about Jesus. He's a blasphemer, they thought. They believed. That was a formal charge against him. He made himself to be the Son of God. He's a blasphemer. He's certainly at odds with the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. 
No, no, not, not actually. He is the servant of God. He is a servant of the God of Abraham, we read there in verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. Jesus is not about some new religion. He is the servant of God. They consider Jesus to be worthy of death. But no, he is the Holy One. He is the Just One. He is the Prince of Life, as he's described here. They considered uh, him to be deserving of the suffering that was inflicted upon him. But again, no, no, no. He suffered as the Christ of God. He suffered as the promised priest, prophet, and king. He suffered in fulfillment of the scriptures. He suffered according to what the prophets foretold about God's servant, his promised Messiah. They thought now he's dead and gone. But no, no, no. God raised him up. God glorified him. He raised him from the dead and he raised him up, 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 up into heaven to God's right hand. He's not dead. He's very much alive. And he is working. He is showing his power. He just restored this lame man to health and strength. He's the living Christ. And you see, waking up to the truth of Jesus Christ, that's grace. That's waking up to the way of complete forgiveness of sins. Repent, therefore, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Blotted out. It's a word that means wiped out, wiped away, smeared away, smeared completely. There might be an allusion to uh, the the practice of, of uh, cleaning a wax slate upon which letters have been written by a sharp instrument. And with the flat side of that instrument, the wax is just smoothed out so that there's no uh, remnants of those words that had been written down. But there's many ways in which we could think of of uh, this idea of blotting out. Imagine your sins being written out in an infallible record of all the things that you've done wrong, all the evil thoughts and imaginations, all the words that you've spoken from birth. And imagine those those judgments against you just being wiped away. Like uh, an eraser will clean a whiteboard now, or a blackboard. Or imagine them written in ink, but they're blotted out as if ink were spilled over the page. And everything written is totally illegible. You can't read it. It's, it's, it's no longer there in any readable form. Now, again, to use that analogy, we might say that all our sins as those who believe in this risen and exalted Savior, are blotted out by the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all sin, so that their guilt is entirely removed from God's sight. And there is no condemnation for those who believe in this Savior. That's the message that Peter is preaching to these guilty people, whose sins have been uh, described in quite graphic and quite horrible detail in his sermon to them. 
But Christ ascended, and he ascended to heaven to show such grace. That's what we hear in the next chapter, in verse 30 of uh, chapter 5. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered. Peter doesn't mince words, does he? Whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He's exalted in glory as a prince, and a prince who grants this grace of repentance and the resulting forgiveness of sins. He ascended as the king of glory, as Psalm 24 proclaims him, as a king of mercy and of grace, and one who is worthy of supreme honor. The Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of the honor that we that we render to him on this Ascension Day evening. And we remember this great work of our Savior. We think of his exaltation. We sing of it. We rejoice in it. But you know, brothers and sisters, the most important way in which we honor the exalted Savior is to receive this gracious gift of the forgiveness of sins to believe the sufficiency of his suffering work, to be confident that the worst kinds of sins are wiped away from those who trust in him. Great sins that are described in this passage, those who killed the Prince of Life, those who preferred a murderer, an actual murderer in the place of Jesus. Bloody sins, you might say. Criminal sins hate sins, and the fact that such grace is proclaimed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on this occasion, the acknowledgement of their guilt, but also the recognition of their ignorance, the comfort that Peter proclaims to them and the assurance that there is forgiveness for them through the very one that they murdered. You know that it's not great sins that keeps people out out of heaven. For those who hear the gospel, it's not even really what they do. It's what they fail to do. If they hear the gospel and do not receive the gift of forgiveness as those who wake up to the truth of who Jesus is and put their trust in him. That's what pe- keeps people out of heaven. Unbelief. The exalted Lord, the ascended Lord, calls us to repentance in the way of receiving the forgiveness of sins from the one who suffered for us. Secondly, we we hear this uh, call to repentance in terms of a summons to find refreshment from his glorious presence. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Refreshing is uh, a pleasant word. We might think of a, of a soft and cool breeze drying our, our shirt or drying our skin from, uh, the sweat of working in the hot sun. And we take a rest in the shade and we feel this cool breeze and we feel refreshed. It's a word that might be associated with an, with an icy drink or with, uh, some vacation time. It's a word that resonates with all this positive, this positive imagery, imagery with regard to physical refreshment. 
the restoration of our bodies. But there's also a kind of uh, refreshment to our souls, right? The same word is used uh, in Second uh, Timothy, where Paul speaks of uh, the household of Onesiphorus. And uh, he says, he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. Paul's in prison at Rome, and Onesiphorus, he seeks him out, and he comes and he visits him. He probably brings him some gifts. He has conversation with him, and the soul of Paul is refreshed, right? That's the result of Christian fellowship and conversation and hospitality. Those kinds of things can serve for our our spiritual refreshment. Christ gives spiritual refreshment. This refreshing from the presence of the Lord doesn't appear as a, as a one-time blessing in this passage. With joy, we heard in our call to worship, with joy you will draw uh, water from the wells of salvation. In Christ there is a uh, never-ending, an abundant supply of refreshing water. Again, that's the imagery, isn't it, of of spiritual blessings. It's it's especially associated with the Holy Spirit and his rejuvenating, his uh, quickening, reviving, refreshing work. Our heavenly shepherd leads us beside still waters and restores our souls. By repentance and faith, uh, sinners enter a new world of comforts and Blessings that come from the exalted Lord. Lifting the guilt and burden of sin. Removing, if you will, the heat of God's displeasure. Well, that's, that's the result of forgiveness. Tears are dried and, and fears, anxious fears are removed. Burdens are lifted and the souls of God's people are refreshed with the assurance of pardoning grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And repentance and such refreshing are closely joined in our text. And we remember that the ascended Lord received the Holy Spirit upon his ascension, which he poured out abundantly on the church, this spirit of life, of revival and renewal. Now, God will send his son, Jesus Christ, to come again, just as he departed. We hear that in the words of the angels to the disciples, that they would see him come again, just as he had been taken from them. God will send his son, Jesus Christ. We're going to consider that also shortly. But in the meantime, there is a very wonderful sense in which Christ continues to come. He continues to come to his people through his Holy Spirit. We already looked at uh, verse 26. Uh, Peter there says, To you first, Christ, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. So it doesn't appear that he's referring simply to the general fact of Christ having been sent by the Father in his love to save sinners. But it's something that is described here as following his resurrection. He has been raised from the dead. He has ascended into heaven and he is sent to bless them. 
How? It's in the ministry of the gospel. Through the work of the Holy Spirit. Christ refreshes and blesses his people. He came and preached peace to you who were afar off. So yes, the ascension of Christ uh, leads us to consider his exaltation following his suffering. It leads us to consider the reward of his faithfulness and entering upon his glory. But it also leads us to consider his ongoing continuous work. Think of how Luke begins the book of Acts. The former treatise, O Theophilus, I have written to you concerning what Jesus began to do and teach. Implying that now the story continues about what Jesus continues to do and to teach. And his gracious work in the church involves his ongoing grace of refreshing his people. Often it's a passage that has been uh, referred to in connection with with uh, uh, periodic times of renewal and spiritual revival in the church. Whether that's the significance of this passage before us, certainly it is a truth that uh, is just such an important and encouraging part of uh, church history. And it's some, something for us to pray for and also believe that there are seasons of refreshing. There, there may be seasons of refreshing in our personal lives, or seasons of refreshing in our life as a congregation. We ought to believe and we ought to seek such blessings from the presence of the Lord, from his glorious presence, where he reigns in power with endless provisions for his church. And then finally, this call to repentance is a call also to hope then in the restoration of all things at Christ's return, whom heaven must receive, we read in verse 21, until the times of restoration of all things. In chapter 1, we, we heard the disciples ask about restoration. In verse 6, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And uh, we would not say that Jesus dismisses the question, but he does uh, not only point to them, point them to God's sovereignty in terms of the fulfillment of his uh, promises and purposes, but he goes on quickly to indicate that uh, their vision is far too small because the power that they re- will receive by which the gospel uh, will be proclaimed is not simply for Jerusalem, but for Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth. In verse 25, God's promise to Abraham is quoted. It's not a promise that simply concerns the literal descendants of Abraham, but rather in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Their outlook was too narrow. And God's purpose in Christ was to spread the blessings of his grace and his kingdom as far as the curse is found. That's the significance, isn't it, of this miracle that that uh, Christ performed through the apostles here in restoring this man who was lame, not in some gradual way, but moving him from a condition of helplessness as a beggar to one who is walking and leaping and praising God. It's like, it's like a picture of the joy of heaven. It's a picture of a man whose body has been completely restored to strength. 
Oh, that's just a, just a glimpse of what awaits the world. This theme of restoration is one that runs throughout scripture. It's a theme of Moses. It's a theme in the Psalms of David and the prophecies of Isaiah. And we could go on and on down through the centuries. We're told that the very beginning of the entrance of sin into this sin-cursed world, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And eventually that will take place gloriously, spectacularly. We're given a vision of that in in Revelation uh, uh, 21, where John saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Whatever this word uh, refreshing means in terms of times, ultimately, this is the final and the perfect refreshment when all things are made new. And he said, Right, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Everlasting refreshment. When all things are restored, all things are made new. And until then, Christ remains in heaven, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, when Jesus will return in like manner as the disciples saw him go. And that means that Christ is not to be looked for. Uh, false Christ arise, but uh, if they say, look, he's over here in the desert. No, don't, don't believe him. It's a false, false teacher. Christ is not to be looked for in some kind of a secret rapture, somehow lifting the saints out of here. Christ is not to be looked for in signs in the sky. The Christian life is a life of faith, and it's a life of faith in one whom we do not see. That was the faith that Peter proclaimed. Yes, it's a faith that's grounded on what happened. The actual, literal coming of the Son of God in the flesh, his physical life, his actual works, his words, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. These are historical events, and they're testified to by many, many witnesses. There's a complete record. And yes, this Christ exalted in heaven is active. He is working. And by faith, we know that, and we see that, and we experience it. And any demand for proof beyond the witness of Scripture and the apostles, it uh, it would not be given. It could not be given. In fact, repentance means giving up all such demands. Yeah, people are very much inclined 
to follow charismatic leaders, especially if they promise uh, temporal uh, blessings. The people who witnessed this miracle, they were looking so intently upon Peter that he has to redirect their attention away from himself to the invisible one who is now exalted in glory. Repentance means believing and loving an unseen Christ. It means turning from the worldliness that keeps people enslaved to temporal pursuits and concerns so that when it comes right down to it, there's a kind of unreality to the Christian message. Oh, yes. In the world in which we live, where everybody lives for the here and now, people live for what they can experience and feel today, the idea of their eternal salvation depending upon what happened 2,000 years ago, they have no vision for the past. People are ignorant of history, but worse, they're indifferent to history. They don't care. They don't think it's relevant whatsoever. All that matters is what they can do, feel, experience today. And if they're to be saved, they're going to have to wake up to the truth of who Jesus is in terms of what he did. They're going to have to wake up to the truth of who he is now as the unseen but exalted Lord in whom they must put their trust. No hell beneath us, above us only sky. Yes, that's the worldview of everybody around us who doesn't have a saving faith in Christ. That's the greatest threat. It's a threat that uh, is quite different than that of these Jews. I don't think anyone here would have uh, any any semblance of the kind of problem that they had. I don't think that there's anyone here who would judge Jesus to have been a blasphemer, an imposter, as one who is worthy of death, as one who is a false teacher. That's not the biggest threat to the professing Christian church today. You know what the biggest threat to the Christian church is today? It's like out of sight, out of mind. To most people, their jobs, their pleasures, their pursuits, and their interests are much bigger and much more real than anything they're going to read in a book. It's not the word of God that's shaping their outlook. Jesus is coming again. Repent, said the bumper sticker. Pretty simple and profound words. But to repent means to live by faith in a living and exalted Savior who's going to come again in glory. That's our great need, isn't it? Otherwise, there's a kind of unreality to the Christian claims. At least these Jews, they were faced with real theological, doctrinal issues. Who is Jesus? A lot of people are totally uninterested in those kinds of questions. And the threat really is not so much theological and doctrinal, but practical. People don't care. They're not interested. But to us, brothers and sisters, what does the ascension of Jesus Christ mean? It means the forgiveness of sins through the one who suffered for us and is now exalted in the heavens. And it means the joy of living under his ongoing gracious blessings and mercies. We live in this world of comfort and blessing that we enter by faith. And it means that we live in the certain hope 
of his coming again in glory. And we want those things to shape our outlook and our values more than anything else. May God enable us to do it. May he sharpen our vision. May he quicken our faith. May we increase our love for the word of God. May we feel its power. May we receive the conviction of its goodness and its truth. May we delight in it. May it shape our entire outlook. That's the kind of daily repentance that we need. Amen.